You're listening to the Constitutional Crisis Hotline. This is the podcast from Fordham Law School in New York about threats to constitutional democracy and what to do about them. I'm Julie Sook. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by an awesome guest who is no stranger to Fordham Law School, Professor Corey Brettschneider. I heard him on BBC last week talking about the indictment of Donald Trump and wanted to take a deeper dive with him on the broader implications of prosecuting Trump while Trump is seeking to regain the presidency of the United States. Corey is the author of The Oath and the Office, A Guide to the Constitution for Future Presidents. In addition to teaching constitutional law at Fordham as a visiting professor for several years, Corey is also a professor of political science at Brown University. In addition to The Oath and the Office, Corey is the author of many books, including The Forthcoming, The Presidents and the People, also Democratic Rights, The Substance of Self-Government, and When the State Speaks, What Should It Say? How Democracies Can Protect Expression and Promote Equality. He's also authored a constitutional law textbook and many law review articles and op-eds. He's been a clear voice in the last several years, including on the pages of the Washington Post and the New York Times defending the legality of prosecuting Trump when he was a sitting president, and he's a frequent media commentator on these issues. So it's really great to have you on the podcast, Corey. Welcome. Thanks, Julie. Always a pleasure to talk to you and looking forward to this conversation. I just wanted to actually start by digging into this indictment itself by looking at the charges and how strong the legal arguments are. And then maybe we could also try to think about it in light of pending prosecutions and the indictment in New York. But why don't we start with this one? Great. I mean, so there were 37 counts against Trump, 31 uh, under the Espionage Act for uh, willfully retaining records that he shouldn't have had, some of which were top secrets, some of them which were classified. And, you know, reading the indictment, I have to say, as a way of starting, it's one thing to read about it in the media and accounts of it. But wow, I mean, the facts are just so damning. And I'll just, you know, give listeners some highlights if they haven't caught them. Yeah, please do. (laughs) Any favorite lines in there? I mean, the, you know, he's at one point with a staffer and a member of the media, and people are speculating about who that is, and uh, offers to show them uh, classified documents about battle plans. Uh, Each of the counts is accompanied by descriptions of of what it is that he was retaining uh, against the law. And uh, they include nuclear secrets. They include uh, strategic analysis, secret analysis of uh, other countries' uh, nuclear and military capabilities. This isn't just, you know, one or two documents that he left in there. There are things that he had and that he was showing off to people. And then part of the uh, indictment is about his willfully retaining all this, even when he was told by his lawyers, who was hiding these documents from his lawyers and also uh, by the National Archives, that he had to turn these things in. So the idea that it was somehow a mistake, part of what's damning is the obstruction of justice, too, um, when the investigators started to look and he hid from his lawyers and from uh, the Department of Justice these materials. But I think it also goes to the fact that after you read it, there's no way that this was, as might be the case in the uh, Biden case, for instance, or in the Pence case, 
just some mistake. I mean, this really, the, the statute requires that he willfully retain his records and willfulness is all over this uh, indictment. Wow. So what are his plausible defenses, I mean, if any? I are there should any? say I don't think there are good defenses. I, I'm happy to talk about some that I think <laughs> right. he's going to bring out. Um, I think one thing that he's going to argue, and I know we're going to talk about this more, is that he had executive privilege to these documents. And he brought this up right. earlier in earlier proceedings uh, with the same judge that he's drawn. Uh, and, you know, the, the thought that I had, and I, I haven't seen anybody actually disagree with this, is that you don't retain executive privilege after you're president. And yet, I guess his argument is something like, if I'm going to try to give it its best spin, that um, these documents were were retained while he was president, and then it's somehow the current uh, circumstances are related to his official duties as president. But, uh, you know, as I said, I don't think those executive privilege arguments are going to go anywhere. The judge did show some sympathy to that, although temporarily he was able to block the Department of Justice from gaining access to these materials. But but that ultimately uh, wasn't a winner uh, in court, and I don't think it'll be here either. Um, I think more promising might be that some of the evidence comes from his attorneys. And so uh, attorney-client privilege is kind of an mm-hmm. interesting one to watch. I think that might be something. And then finally, he's going to insist, I'm sure, that his uh, lawyers argue selective prosecution, or as he's been talking about his defenders in the media, right. are weaponization of the Department of Justice. And, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of argument that, that um, we've had, this happens all the time. He's been saying this publicly, the Biden case we mentioned, um, the Clinton case. So can we actually just play out, though, what he means when he says weaponization? That's not really a legal argument, is it? Yeah, so maybe maybe we could try to unpack that a little bit, because he's using the word a lot and claiming this is a threat to democracy. Right. I saw that. Uh, and so if we could try to play out what he's actually getting at and saying that. I think what he's trying to say is that there's selective prosecution going mm-hmm. on here, that this is a partisan uh, attack on him for his beliefs, for instance. And if that were true, then, you know, there might be a First Amendment complaint that he's being prosecuted for his beliefs. But I, I don't see that going anywhere, uh, that there's some kind of discrimination based on partisan affiliation. I don't know the details of how you prove selective prosecution, but I, I just haven't seen any evidence of this. So I, I don't see how it would get off the ground. It's certainly not enough to point to cases um, where people should have been prosecuted uh, but but weren't. And that's mostly what we're hearing from him and, and his defenders in the media. Right. And it's really because he is seeking the presidency again in 2024 uh, that he's arguing, well, they're selectively prosecuting me uh, to hurt my chances. Uh, and which, uh, and arguably it's like, it could be having the opposite effect. Uh, but in any case, I'm just wondering if we could now, uh, think a little bit, cause, uh, certainly you've written about this in the context of when Trump was a sitting president, uh, are there any bodies of law that, uh, would come into play with regard to a potential presidential contender or even a president, uh, being prosecuted or even imprisoned, uh, that, um, is there anything that we could think of that would be affected by uh, his being prosecuted for this? I mean, I, you know, again, I don't think it'll work, but I think what he's trying to say in these executive privilege arguments is that certainly there are many arguments that, that I know we'll get into later about why sitting presidents are immune 
from prosecution. I don't agree with them, but it is the policy of the Department of Justice as outlined in memos during the Nixon administration, during the Clinton administration that say that there is actually a bar on the Justice Department prosecuting sitting presidents. And there were the Mueller investigation, for instance, there were, um, you know, credible arguments that he obstructed justice. And yet the way I read the Mueller report, it says uh, that the ban on uh, these memos basically create a policy that banned the Department of Justice from pursuing action against the sitting president. There's also a body of law about former presidents, and there's a case called Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which is about civil litigation. And what Nixon versus Fitzgerald said is that a former president isn't liable for actions within the outer perimeter of official action. There's no liability for right. a president's actions. So that was what I was hinting at, that he might try to do something with Fitzgerald. Now, if there's no civil liability, there's certainly no criminal liability for official actions that the president takes as president. Uh, so, you know, you could see him trying to say that, that well, he had these records, the decision was made uh, as part of his official duties, but I, I think that collapses pretty quickly. There is another argument that's being floated in the media, but I don't know that the Trump team is going to use it, but that says, um, you know, various things that like what he was saying in the beginning, that as president, he had the ability to declassify these materials with his mind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that I thought before I saw the indictment was going to be a huge part of what he was going to argue that he did secretly or privately or somewhere mean to declassify this material. Um, but uh, the thing that really undercuts that is in the in the facts, in the indictment, uh, when he showed, for instance, that battle plan to the staffer and the reporter, he talked about the fact that uh, he it was secret and he wasn't supposed to show them. So he's really admitting, you know, in the evidence right, that they right. have that he didn't declassify. In fact, I think he says at one point, I could have declassified right. these materials, but I didn't. So the main argument that I think most of us thought he was going to be able to make, which was about this sort of, you know, and there are the stronger your theory of the presidency, the more you might believe the president has the unilateral ability to simply declassify something. I wouldn't think with his mind, but some, something short of that. But that really is undercut by the the statement of facts. Now, maybe he'll try to revive that argument in some way or try to exclude the evidence that he said these things about uh, that he knew it was declassified. And the more he could do that, if, if you take that out of the record, then, then that might that might have some potential. Yeah. But let's actually, let's talk about running for president while being prosecuted. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's possible. There's no There's no legal barrier to that. Right. Uh, and there's historical precedent for it. Uh, I think Eugene Debs ran for That's, president yeah. uh, and got like a, a million votes or something uh, running yeah. for president while um, actually not just prosecuted, but uh, while serving a prison term uh, yes. after being convicted under anti-sedition laws. I think he called for um, resistance to the draft during World War One and uh, was imprisoned for that. And so um, I guess if we think about uh, the possibility of uh, Trump uh, standing trial uh, and, you know, being convicted and um, having a prison sentence, uh, whether that, what kind of barrier, if any, will that pose to his presidential prospects? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly no, uh, if this is ongoing, there's no, uh, there's no bar on him running for office. In fact, I think stronger than that, he's going to argue that he has the, the, the right uh, to run and that there are specific 
requirements to be eligible to be president of the United States laid out in the Constitution. You mean constitutionally, yeah. Yeah, constitutionally. And um, I mean, I guess another question is if he's convicted, there are penalties under the Espionage Act that might apply depending on the town. So that's another possibility. And there's a question about those if he's um, disqualified under the criminal statute, whether or not those disqualifications are themselves constitutional. And so Eugene Volokh and others have been arguing that even if there is a criminal penalty that would bar him running, serving as president, that he would be disqualified, that those criminal bars in the statute are actually incompatible with the Constitution's simple requirements to run for office, the age requirement to be born in the United States. And so those penalties might even be unconstitutional. And I guess that would clear the way for him to do what Debs did, which is even run if he's convicted and and in prison. These are pretty fantastical examples, but that's where, where we are. Well, Nicholas Kristof wrote in the New York Times, uh, quote, an absurd question keeps nagging at me. Could an inmate in a federal prison get a leave to attend his own presidential inauguration? But I feel like this is a practical question. Like he's the front runner. Right. Uh, and uh, we're saying under the Constitution, uh, there, there are two simple requirements that there's no, nothing that says you can't be president if you're being prosecuted. Yep. And there's nothing that says you can't be president from a prison cell. Uh, is there? Or <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think you could argue that under the 25th Amendment, there's an idea of a president being incapacitated. And so, you know, you should go through the complex procedure of the 25th Amendment, which has never been used to remove a, a president against his or her will. Uh, but maybe it should be used here. Now, that argument was made all the time during the four years of the Trump administration. And of course, it was sure. never used, even at the point of insurrection. Well, it's because you need the vice president to do it, yeah. right? Or, or the president himself or the vice president uh, to say uh that he is unable, the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of the office. I would think that being in prison would make someone unable to discharge the powers and duties of the office. But uh, but I think that procedurally, right. uh, the setup of the 25th Amendment makes it unlikely That's right. uh, that it could be successfully uh, deployed. So, And eventually you need the certification of Congress, I think, after, 60, after some period of time. Um, there has to be a vote. And now that would they have the numbers, you know, given the number of Republicans who are supporting him, no matter what, all the things, in other words, that played out during the Trump's four years that prevented that 25th Amendment from removing him, even after the insurrection, that to me was right. about as serious as it, as it gets, uh, I think might be in play here too, as, as wild as that's, that sounds, because it would be, you know, for instance, his own vice president having to agree, that's, you know, imagine that's Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or some complete loyalist. And yes, you would think a sensible person would say that, but um, I'm not sure here. I guess I think one thing that could we could talk about the possibility of this, but it's, it's certainly plausible is, you know, there's an example in Israel of a sitting president who had explicit immunity under the Constitution from prosecution and um, Katzov and uh, uh, was credibly accused of, of rape. And what happened was the prosecutor tried to make a deal with Katzoff that if he were to resign and give up the immunity, that the, there wouldn't be a criminal term. So that opens a possibility, which is what if a prosecutor, um, uh, if the special prosecutor were to say to Trump, 
look, I'm willing to make a deal. You're facing more than 400 years in prison if you're convicted. Here's here's the deal. Oh, I heard it was only in the double digits, actually. I've seen different numbers. I mean, I was trying to add up when I was reading the indictment. And I guess if they're served concur- uh, concurrently, you know, there, there's a limit. Stack them. But if, you, if they're served subsequently, yeah, that's, you know, it runs into the hundreds at least. Anyway, okay. anyway, if you, if you, um, if you, I actually don't know the, the details of how that would be assessed. It would be concurrent or, or each count would be served, served in addition. But imagine anyway, the threat is serious enough. It doesn't matter, actually, if it's more than 20 years. He's, of course, in the 70s. And so how much longer would he live beyond that? It's unlikely he would. And so facing all this, it could be that this plays out by the prosecutor saying to him, let's make a deal. You know, you don't run for president, you accept the possible penalty of disqualification under the Espionage Act. Um, maybe you serve eight months or some symbolic term in, in prison, much less than you would. And that's it. But he would have to plead guilty under one of the counts, right? You would have to plead guilty. Exactly. And so the more, I guess I think that seems unlikely given his personality, but the more I read about the details of the case. I mean, I think if it was any other defendant, lawyers would be saying, you, you should plead guilty. This is wild. You could go to jail for a long time. And especially right. a deal like that, that was only a few months in prison or a year, I think people would jump at it. Now, this is Trump. So, uh, you know, but but I, I don't know. I mean, he's also a rational actor. And so I don't see that happening in the next few weeks. But maybe a few months from now, the more the evidence comes, the more he speaks to the lawyers, especially if he gets a good lawyer who's honest with him. Uh, maybe that is a possibility that he would take a, a deal like that. And you think it could be part of the deal that he just agrees not to run? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I, I think it would be appropriate, especially since one of the penalties under the Espionage Act is disqualification. Now, as we said, right. there's an right. argument about the constitutionality of that penalty for a president, but it seems plausible that a judge would accept that, that arrangement. And is the argument about the unconstitutionality of that provision, simply that the Constitution exclusively sets out two requirements to run for president, and so it's exclusive and you can't have statutes uh, imposing other requirements? Is that the constitutional argument that we're talking about here? I think that's it. Yeah, that, that you know, it's, it's not just a minimum set of requirements, but it's, it's, it's um, uh, sufficient for, for what what you need to, to run for president, then you can't just add on through a statute another set of requirements. And so the penalty in the Espionage Act is essentially adding on a requirement that says, and not be convicted of espionage or of you know, withholding documents. So that's their argument. Now, with that, with that work, you know, um, you go to the Supreme Court, I think, which tends to favor, I mean, I, I don't think it should. I think that that's a bad mm, argument yeah. to me. You know, there's nothing explicitly in the Constitution about the right to run as long as you meet these explicit requirements. And then when you start to appeal to other sources aside from the text, like the values um, of the Constitution, the rule of law, for instance, <laughs> the uh, structure of a Constitution devoted to the rule of law and, and worried about excessive abuses by presidents, you know, I, I think it would cut against the idea that this is unconstitutional. But there is a, a you know, originalist, textualist argument uh, the person I've seen pushing it most is is uh, Eugene Volokh uh, at UCLA that um, that says yes, this is this is the full set of requirements. And of course, I'm not going to decide, and you're not going to decide 
this question where where he he to be disqualified uh, by a court of law would be the Supreme Court. Now, a deal might avoid all of that because I, I don't see how it would be litigated up to the Supreme Court if, if there was a deal. But a penalty imposed on him, I think, would be. So if we're going to think about deals, uh, what do you think of the claims in this indictment compared to the legal arguments in the New York indictment about the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels and also uh, what's pending in Georgia? I mean, the Georgia, uh, in, in, as serious as this is, and you know, I think the facts we've talked about are pretty damning. The Georgia case seems, you know, the most connected to January 6th. And after all, that to me is the real crime of the Trump presidency, because it wasn't just a threat to our national security in these individual areas or intelligence gathering. It was a threat to the entire system of American democracy. It was an attempted self-coup to stay in power using violence. And so, you know, I, I would hope that the federal prosecutors, as well as Georgia, are looking into those charges. And I think there's a pretty good argument, especially after the January 6th committee's evidence that that he really did um, incite that insurrection, certainly the riot um, uh, that day, and um, that he's guilty of um, of trying to uh, not just undermine the election, but to undermine our democracy. And, you know, he often says things that give you a clue when he said he admired dictators and and wanted to be uh, like the dictator of North Korea or or um, of uh, Putin and Russia, that he really meant it. And, uh, you know, so those cases to me are, are more serious. Obviously, the New York case is less serious than either of these that we've been talking about. Um, but I wouldn't go so far as to say that I think that Alvin Bragg in New York is just bringing a political prosecution. You know, I think one thing that we, we can do in all of these is to ask, well, you know, is the president being treated as another citizen would be? And there certainly are cases in New York, from my understanding, of uh, falsification of business records. There's, we still don't know the full facts of that case either. You know, there's supposed to be some uh, underlying crime that this was in the furtherance of. So what was he falsifying them for? That's going to be the question. There has to be an underlying felony. Um, and was he trying to evade uh, taxes? Was he trying to, um, you know, violate campaign finance laws? surreptitiously. So so I guess I'm a little bit waiting on that uh, New York case to see what the underlying crime is, what was going on. And we know much less about what happened there uh, than we do in the case of the, the documents that, that we've been talking about. So I don't think it's as right. serious as the other two, but I think certainly there, there might have been a, a serious crime there and felony uh, worth bringing. Uh, I'm a little bit hedging because we just don't know as much. But certainly with this case, uh, there's some serious threats to our national security. Oh, yeah. yeah. In a way, I couldn't have believed. I mean, I really, in reading Which are also threats to our democracy. Yes. I I see what you mean about uh, Georgia being specifically about January 6th and um, being an attempted coup or just rejecting the legitimacy of our system of voting. Uh, and uh, so, so there's that. And I was actually what, just wondering, though, if you think about the national security risks and January 6th, uh, some scholars have talked about uh, the possibility of disqualification under the 14th Amendment, Section 3. And I was wondering what you thought of those arguments. Yeah, I think, you know, Congress has a role in, I, I should say that I'm all for, and, and I, I'll say something about, I, I'm not 
as clear on what the objections, constitutional objections are there. There are some, uh, some people saying that the president isn't the kind of official uh, Tillman, I think is his name, who can be removed under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that he's not the kind of official that can be removed. But when I think about the point of the post-Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments, they were all about reconstituting our democracy in a way that ensured the rule of law, non-discrimination, but uh, also th there was a real concern too, I think, to, to stop future rebellions and who would be most dangerous in rebellion, but but a high public official um, who, who who was instigating it. And you know, the impeachment power gives the power to Congress, of course, to remove a sitting president. And also, I mean, this is discussed less, but the procedure is a majority of the House votes to impeach and then two-thirds to remove. And then there's a second vote after that, which is a majority vote to disqualify. And if in January 6th we would have gotten the two-thirds to remove Trump, we would have moved on to a majority vote for disqualification. That that that's because the Congress is charged with protecting our democracy, in part from a president who's gone awry. So, to me, reading Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment and using it for the purpose of stopping a former president who has committed insurrection from running again seems perfectly complementary to me to the disqualification provisions and impeachment. And I not only think you can use it for that purpose when you look at the Constitution as a whole, again, not just the text, but its values and, and purposes and structure, uh, especially the idea of Congress's role in protecting our democracy from uh, President gone awry, that it not just can do, that it should be used in that case. I'd love to see that. Now, how you do that, do you have just a straight vote? Do you have legislation enabling the use of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Those are interesting questions, but I think, it, yes, <laughs> that would be a beyond appropriate thing to do, especially at this point when we see uh, the, the threat that he really does pose. To the extent that there's a debate, I know some constitutional scholars have just said that he is an officer of the United States, and others say that the language specifically says senator, representative, elector, and the general language of officer of the United States was never intended to include a president. And so I know that's uh, part of the debate, but it does seem like um, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion. Yeah, that part applies. Against uh, the same, uh, that, that um, it seems like with anything having to do with January 6th, that would come within it, although we don't know from the 14th Amendment what the, I mean, do you even need a criminal conviction uh, in order to know that someone has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same? There's no reference to criminal law. And I'd make the same parallel. I mean, I think, again, the analogy with impeachment is helpful. And the requirement, of course, for impeachment removal is high crimes and misdemeanors. That sounds like you need a crime crime, but there is no... Uh, such thing as high crimes and misdemeanors in the criminal law. And of course, I think the consensus is, no, that's not the requirement. It's that you have abused the oath and you've abused the office in a way that threatens to, what, threatens our democracy. Now, again, I think you have a parallel here too, that insurrection isn't, there's no explicit requirement of a criminal offense. And I don't think that's the way to understand Congress's role. It has an independent, apart from the judiciary, obligation to protect our democracy. And in the same way that the obligation to disqualify a removed president who um, isn't fit for office again, I think if Congress uses its judgment to say the president has committed insurrection, that that's enough, even if Jack Smith um, doesn't bring a, uh, a federal prosecution. We talked earlier about selective prosecution 
or political prosecution. Uh, and it does seem to me that there will always be a political dimension to prosecuting um, a former president. And you see the prosecution of former presidents or even sitting presidents uh, in a lot of different contexts around the world. And so I guess I want to think a little bit about, well, what are the political effects of this indictment going to be? Uh, what were the political effects of the New York indictment? I mean, what I was seeing in early April was that the polls were showing that the indictment was actually giving Trump a little bit of a boost with his um, fundraising and in the polls. And um, I, there was a little bit of a surge, at least amongst, I think, Republican uh, voters. It may well be that the people who are already uh, his base are just getting more fired up because of this perception of selective or political prosecution. Uh, and so they're more su supportive of him uh, on the one hand. Uh, but uh, interestingly, with this indictment, I think, you know, everyone was planning or, you know, there was a lot of uh, prediction that there might be rallies and violence in Miami when he was going in on Tuesday. But it was actually pretty tame in the end, yeah. uh, pretty thinly attended rallies. Uh, but uh, what do you think? I mean, do you think it should matter what the political uh, effects are as we think through uh, the desirability of these prosecutions? Yeah, my understanding is that when the Department of Justice considers whether to bring an indictment, they weigh in part the question of interference in, in an election. So it matters in that sense. And when they were making the decision, I'm sure they were weighing it very heavily. But the facts here are just so overwhelming that I think even though there, there is rightly a policy of worrying about interference in an election or even having an effect, even when it's justified, that the threat here is so great that, that it outweighs uh, that worry. More generally, though, I guess my, my thought is, you know, unfortunately, what Trump is doing and his supporters especially are doing is doubling down on the idea that, um, you know, Trump is really beyond our democracy, beyond the law, and that they're going to support him no matter what. And there is an idea of the president as an elected kind of dictator who's not subject to any requirements of the rule of law. And more and more, the rhetoric is starting to sound like, we don't care if he broke the law, we're going to support him no matter what. So there was an right. interview with, with Pence recently, of all people, and Pence was saying, I'm not going to promise to not pardon Trump. I want to see if he's guilty. I want to see what the crimes are. I want to see the facts. And in our system, that's what we do. Basic due process argument. And his, uh, the interviewer, uh, conservative radio host, was saying, well, that's disrespectful. That's disloyal. And that's all of the language, I think, that we're getting from Trump's really hardcore supporters, that they will support him even if he's uh, violating the rule of law, even if he's going to undermine our democracy. Uh, remember, he's been talking about pardoning the rioters from January 6th. It's not that he thinks right. they did anything wrong. They supported him. And so when somebody really does prize loyalty and prize his or her own power in the name, of course, of this fake idea of the people, his supporters, uh, that's, that's the real danger in this election, that it becomes a referendum, not just on Trump, but on are we going to have a democracy limited by the rule of law or not? And certainly he's on the side, I think, as clearly as can be of, of no, I, I'm for myself and for my, my supporters. And, and they seem to be endorsing that message. And the fact that he doesn't, you know, this isn't just some fringe. He just doesn't seem to move very much in the polls when it comes to his favorability ratings. It sounds like a, a significant portion of the American people uh, do not believe in the fundamental principles of democracy in the sense that I understand them. Uh, 
they have a very different understanding, a, a, a populist understanding in which the people can just elect a president to do whatever he wants. That That's not my idea of democracy. I think of democracy as no one is above the law, defined by certain rights. Um, and, and that's how serious the stakes have become, I think, unfortunately, in this election. But then what next? I mean, if he actually does become more popular, all right, and we, we don't know, I mean, it's what, what's going to happen, but if, if it actually is possible that he continues to run and gets elected again in 2024, it seems like one of the fears, if, if he persuades enough people that this is just a political prosecution, which he will get his revenge for when he regains power, uh, do we end up with a politics in which prosecution of uh, those in power when they've left power just becomes a normal part of our politics? Yeah, I mean, my worry is that, you know, when you combine the structure of the presidency as it exists now, not as I think it should exist, but as it exists, and his increasing knowledge, I mean, he started off knowing nothing about the Constitution or uh, law. Mm-hmm. You know, my, there are all these amazing things that he said. One was that when his sister, who was um, a federal judge, uh, uh, participated in the decision striking down the partial birth abortion ban, he said, uh, I don't know why my sister passed that, signed that bill. That was his last. So he didn't know how a bill became a law. I didn't know anything. Now, yeah. over time, you hear him saying more and more, Article, Article 2 says I can do anything I want. And what he's yeah. cluing into is, is you know, a very extreme version of it, but but a version of the unitary executive theory where the president really does have control. Now, when you start to look at the real checks on presidential power, they've been eviscerated to a large extent. Impeachment, we've had about as paradigmatic a case of impeachment uh, for impeachment as you could get January 6th, and it didn't even there, uh, didn't go through. You have probable immunity for sitting presidents, which means that um, you know, he, he couldn't be indicted as president. An interesting question we haven't talked about is he has been indicted, but say he becomes president, could the trial take place while he's president? And I think probably not that he's going to say, well, if you can't indict a sitting president, you certainly can't try a sitting president. And the argument for not indicting a sitting president has to do with being distracted. That you, that's a big part of it, that you don't want sitting mm-hmm. presidents having to not pay attention to the national security to pay attention instead to their own trial. Well, that same logic applies here. So, you know, what are the real checks that are left? Well, one classic argument, even from defenders of the unitary executive, is, well, the federal bureaucracy is set up in a way that there'll be a check, that there are experts in place. Uh, But he's learned very quickly that although the DOJ stopped a lot of what he wanted to do, for instance, Barr didn't go along with the plan to um, appoint a special prosecutor to uh, look into what he claimed were the, the, the falsely claim was the fraud of, of the election. Uh, next time, he's not going to have Bill Barr. He's going to find, you know, his people, uh, Rudy Giuliani as attorney general, who will do everything that he wants. So it's dark. I mean, if he wins, the presidency is so powerful. It's such a loaded gun that he, if he's in charge of it and it comes with all these immunities, uh, I, I, it's very hard to see how we're going to stop him. So it's, it's got to be these cases. That, that by the way, is why I'm, I... I think more and more I'm favoring the idea of a deal that the risk is so high. Right. You know, I think it has to carry some prison time with it. But but 
the risk is so high for the democracy that we, we've got to think in those terms of him winning. Well, and how do you think of this? I mean, you mentioned the Israel example, and maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about what that meant politically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, in, in the United States, we have been having this debate about whether a sitting president is subject to indictment, but there's no explicit uh, immunity for sitting presidents. And so the people who have argued for it have tried to pull it out of the structure and principles of the Constitution. One is the distractibility argument that I mentioned, which is mostly pragmatic. There's also a dignity argument about the kind of um, office that the presidency is and why indictment would be undignified. But in Israel, there is just an explicit immunity for uh, sitting presidents. So when this um, sitting president was accused credibly of, of rape, uh, the prosecutor was in this bind of, what do I do? Do I wait until he's out of office to bring the charges? How do I deal with this? And a deal was offered uh, that uh, he would step down in exchange for um, either very little prison or, or no prison, but a much, much reduced sentence. Uh, the, it played out in a bizarre way, which is that he did step down, but then decided that he wasn't happy with the minimal uh, punishment that the deal would require him to accept. So he fought the charges and lost and then went to prison for a serious term because the prosecutor was able to, uh, to indict him. You know, I think that speaks to a number of things. One is the absolute, increasingly, I'm using strong terms, but the the really terrible idea that we should have immunity for sitting presidents. I mean, it just enables criminality. You see that there. Uh, Politically, I think the prosecution, you know, killed him. He's not a a force, metaphorically, he's not a force in Israeli politics. The Israeli president is less powerful anyway than the prime minister, but but I think that that really disgraced him appropriately when, when he was convicted eventually and, and imprisoned. And I'd like to see the same thing happen with Trump. In the Nixon case, of course, Nixon was pardoned and became a celebrity, a commentator, somebody who was respected. Uh, I think that that was an enormous mistake of Ford to pardon Nixon and not to follow the, 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 the way that Israel went, which would be to appropriately, if somebody commits a crime, to prosecute them. Well, I don't know. There are crimes, right? Yeah. I, it does seem like one of the issues in countries where you see uh, presidents, former presidents prosecuted and sometimes in prison, like Lula in mm, Brazil, I yeah. right? I, there, there are crimes that are corruption crimes. And I think this is the kind of story. So some people were uncomfortable with the indictment in New York because the falsification of business records could be something in the context of assuming selective prosecution. And I'm not assuming that uh, in this case necessarily, but just in the world where uh, there are crimes of corruption, um, even sexual harassment and rape, uh, there are many, many more politicians who can and perhaps should be prosecuted for sexual harassment, sexual assault and rape Mm -hmm. than have been or will be. Uh, And we all know this. Uh, And so if it becomes selective because there's prosecutorial discretion uh, as to which cases of corruption or falsification, uh, there are the kinds of crimes where um, you can imagine many politicians uh, have something. Uh, And of course, one of the first things that Trump supporters have said about this indictment is, oh, well, uh, we're sure that Biden and Hillary and even Obama uh, must have uh, some documents that they shouldn't, right? Uh, So if you exist in this world where you know that there's probably uh, more crime than there is prosecution, even amongst high-level politicians and leaders, 
uh, then uh, do you want to exist in a world in which it just becomes? And I think this is what Trump is getting at by uh, using the word weaponization, uh, that uh, are we going to exist in a politics now where prosecution is just, you know, in in the toolkit of polarized partisan politics? And I think there are some countries where uh, where you might say that that is the case and uh, and it's not a desirable model of how politics in a democracy should work. I don't know. And what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a good counterexample, the Brazil case. I mean, the other case that I'd bring up that I think really does help us to think about it, and I think it pushes your point, although I'll say, I'll, I'll say my response to it is the Ken Starr example. You right. know, so Ken Starr, of course, is appointed on a different system than we have now and than we had during Nixon. The independent prosecutor law takes the prosecutorial power outside the Department of Justice and makes the independent prosecutor accountable to uh, both the judiciary, um, Congress, and to, to some extent, the president. But but there really is independence and not a member of the Department of Justice. And Starr thought he could, it was a member during Starr's term, that he could prosecute a president. And of course, the argument about Starr was that it was a political prosecution of everything that you said, that the crimes uh, were not that serious. So, um, you know, one, I tend to think they're a little more serious than we tend to think, you know, historically. But when you say more serious or less serious, I mean, you're talking, it seems like in this conversation, you're talking about how serious or related is the crime to the, the health of our democracy yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or the office of the presidency in the context yeah. of the constitutional democracy that's set up. So it seems to me uh, and I, I agree with you that maybe the Israeli model of explicitly building an immunity for the president into the Constitution or any other law, maybe that that's um, not a good idea uh, because it suggests that some officers are above the law. But uh, to my mind, if you have something like the provision in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, uh, perhaps some level of statutory or even constitutional reform uh, that spells out um, who decides under what circumstances. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's one example, but I just wondered if you thought like, given your position, which is that they should not be above the law, but in the context of prosecution, yeah. uh, the, the distinction that you're making between serious and not so serious yeah. crimes seems to be doing a lot of work. Yeah. I think you, I have to concede something first, which is that if you go my way and I am in favor of bringing back the independent prosecutor, role with an explicit ability to prosecute sitting presidents. But you, I have to say that in the Ken Starr case, even though you're right, it wasn't anywhere close to as serious as what we're dealing with with Trump, that the risk to our democracy is so great on the other side of not allowing prosecution, for instance, in the Trump case or in others or Nixon. To my mind, Corey, it, it was not as serious. But what's striking is that people use the yeah. same language, you know, like obstruction of justice. In the Clinton case. Right. Rule of law, you know. But I, I guess I'm willing to say is, you know, that either side is going to have a downside. If you allow the prosecution of a sitting president, we're going to run into the danger that you're talking about, which is selective prosecution, prosecution of crimes that maybe shouldn't be prosecuted. But if we don't do it, I think, and this is my point, then we're going to enable the possibility of Trump-like crimes that could destroy our democracy. So I guess I think the risk is just so much greater on the side of um, not allowing prosecution, not having uh, in that democracy could collapse 
that I'm willing to allow instances of over-prosecution, like in the Clinton case or even in the Lula case. So you lose either way. There's no easy answer to this. And I have to admit that, yes, in my way of doing it, you're going to have prosecutions that probably shouldn't have happened. And maybe the Clinton is like that. But I'm willing to accept that as as a way of preserving the system. Because I guess I don't think, as much as I'd love to see Congress use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, I'm skeptical after um, seeing these impeachments, which didn't happen, uh, that Congress is going to really do its job. And I think the real way to stop a president, uh, as much as I want to use the constitutional roles of, of Congress, is through prosecution. So let's say he's not tried before mm. November 2024. Yeah. Uh, and you were saying earlier that uh, if he won, uh, you think there is a plausible argument that many people would be sympathetic to and to which we have some precedent, which is that a sitting, maybe a sitting president shouldn't be indicted right. uh, or an elected president should be indicted, but shouldn't be tried. Because if you're actually standing trial, that does actually interfere with your ability to do your job. And, um, and so if you take that argument seriously, uh, what do you think could happen here? I mean, it's, it's totally plausible that. Yeah. I think this that's, won't all be done by November no. 2024. And it's also plausible that people will vote for him. Yep. Um, and if he was eventually tried in some of this intervening time, uh, could a sentence be delayed or postponed? I, you know, I, I think that all of these are real possibilities that certainly the idea that he would be convicted and it would all be wrapped up before the election. There's a good chance that won't happen. And that, this will be ongoing and he'll be president. And then I know what he's going to argue. And, you know, I've been partly making the pardon case himself to try to pardon himself. There's an argument about that. But I think the thing that he really could win uh, is the argument that says if you cannot indict a sitting and this, remember, we don't even have to go to the Supreme Court. What is the policy of the Department of Justice? There are these memos saying that the department's policy is you can't indict a sitting president. So one argument that he'll make is, well, if you can't indict a sitting president, you can't try a sitting president. That's the more distracting thing. So even within the Department of Justice, maybe the policy doesn't allow it. And then I think, you know, he certainly would uh, make a claim in court that would go to the Supreme Court that says something like that. And the court, I think, is very sympathetic to the idea that constitutionally you cannot indict a sitting president. And I, I think it falls from that that they'd be sympathetic to the idea that you couldn't try a sitting president. So... Uh, that there are many scenarios where if he wins, uh, you know, that's the end of it. Now, not to mention that he can appoint a, an attorney general on the demand that this case is, you know, dismissed and the prosecutor is prosecuted. I mean, that, those are more more fantastical scenarios. But um, if he wins, I don't. I think there are uh, many scenarios in which he's never uh, this never continues and is never convicted. Now, I guess you could say four years after that. Maybe if he lost, we would continue. That's a possibility. It's far off. Well, it's not too far off. It seems like a series <laughs> of wild hypos, I know, but this is real life. Yeah, but here we are. Well, thanks so much. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess we're just quite leaving things because we're going to watch it all unfold. Yeah, we're not leaving people with an optimist. I mean, look, I guess if I were to leave on an optimistic Note, I would say there is a real way to stop this, all these disasters from happening. And the most important way, of course, is 
Um, we don't have a lot of control over the prosecution or the judge, but we certainly have control over the election. And, uh, you know, if this person wins, again, uh, I know I'm supposed to be, uh, you know, even keeled, <laughs> you know, uh, professor. But but at this point, when democracy is under threat, we can't afford that. I mean, we, we, we really need to stop this at, at the polling place. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks also to Fordham Law School, including Deans Matthew Diller, Joe Landau, Young Jay Lee, and the communications team for their support of the podcast all year. And to the producers at Yellow Armadillo Studios, Melody Rowell and Bill Pollock, who have been amazing, always. The Constitutional Crisis Hotline music is climbing by Pottington Bear, and the logo was designed by Clint Webb at Agave Studios. Our next episode will feature more of our Fordham Law colleagues breaking down the cases being decided at the end of the Supreme Court term. There might be another crisis or two to talk about, so please stay tuned and join us next time.